Today on Basic, we welcome stand-up comedian and Chappelle Show co-creator, Neil Brennan. They're not going to want to pay both of us. The spirit was sort of ruined and the relationship was sort of ruined. I would have preferred a bit of respect paid. I don't see how you could have come to a different outcome. People would go, do you know where he is? I'd be like, I do. And they go, can you tell me? I go, no, but it's pretty commensurate with how insane the show is. Somebody referred to it as a catastrophic success. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basic. I'm Doug Herzog, former TV executive and the guy who once tried to pay Dave Chappelle $50 million. And I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and someone who is trying to convince Doug Herzog to pay her $50 million. Jen, you are worth every penny of it. Basic is the official podcast of the unofficial history of basic cable television. We talk about everything from MTV to Mad Men, exploring the shows, networks, personalities, and milestone moments that define TV in the glorious era of basic cable. Our guest today is Neil Brennan, a noted stand-up comedian in his own right, but also the co-creator of the legendary Chappelle show on Comedy Central which amazingly lasted only two seasons, but remains one of the funniest, most influential and controversial shows ever to grace the cable dial. The show really burned bright like a comet and then it all went down in flames. But nearly 20 years later, it's iconic sketches and incredible comedic moments remain unforgettable and still endure with the audience. It's amazing that the show went off the air so long ago and yet there's still so much mystery and misinformation about how all of that went down. So I'm extra excited to hear the story firsthand from today's guest, Chappelle Show co-creator, Neil Brennan. Neil Brennan, welcome to Basic. Thanks for being here with us. Oh my God, it's so good to be here. So we ask all of our guests this question at the very beginning, which is, do you remember when you got cable television? And what were you excited to watch on cable television, if you can recall? I will say that um, I I would, yeah, we got cable probably in like 1988, 89. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the thing I remember most, and I don't know if anybody else brought this up, you'd get the free Cinemax Showtime weekend and HBO, and for a uh, for a young man exploring his sexuality, <laughs> those were those were it was it was a it was a boom time mm. for uh, it was a it was a they, you would just get a lot of what we used to call Skinamax, which go. was not- naked people on Cinemax, right? Not not basic, of course, but there were naked people, so that's why you had to pay a little extra. Oh yeah, 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 that was not basic. Sorry, is that a it different? No, 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 no. That's perfectly, that's perfectly, that's perfectly <laughs> fine. That's perfectly fine. Just, just for our viewers who may not remember the era when you had to pay extra to see naked people. Hey, um, you famously grew up in a house of eleven children, right? Yes. So, and you were the youngest. Yeah. So, how did growing up in a household like that, you know, ultimately, you know, sort of influence your comedy and your career choice? It was, well, it was actually 10, I realize now. Uh, I was just trying to be agreeable. And then I was like, wait a minute. Um, oh, so it's actually, it's, you, oh, so you were one of 10, not 11. Yeah, I'm one of 10. Yeah. Got it. Oh, well, um, the question is so, no longer interesting. So now yeah, we're skipping it. Yeah, no, I, I think that I my TV experience was, I was not, like, I don't think I watched a lot of Sesame Street. Like I, because there was one TV and it was, I was not given any precedent uh, in terms of what I wanted to watch. So it was like a lot of like uh, Barnaby Jones 
and uh, and um, Hill Street Blues. There was not a lot of puppets. There was not a lot of uh, education. It was just like uh, cops, a lot of cops. You went to film school at, I think, NYU. Am I right? Yeah. Yes. Um, so I was reading an interview where you said the following thing. When I was in film school, I walked out of Wayne's World and I said, and I still kind of believe this, that's the best movie I've ever seen. Do you still believe that? I still kind of believe. I didn't say that. that I said that four months ago. <laughs> Did you? Okay. Yeah. I still kind of believe. There was an article about it the other day where it was like, this movie aged so well. Um, and it's just a really, it's like the, it was like a, it's almost like the, um, easy rider of comedy or something like there's the types of jokes that are in it didn't exist before as far as i can remember on in movies it was like com it was kind of like airplane but also like a real narrative with sketches big, big pieces big production pieces yeah big production pieces but also just like three two endings like uh an oscar clip like just a lot of crazy, even Mike does a, there's a joke in it where he says, uh, she, he meets Cassandra and uh, he's, there's a joke, uh, there's a fight in the bar and he goes like, and Mike goes, ooh, everyone was Kung Fu fighting and realizes that it's a racist joke. And this is in 1991. Like you could kind of do that joke now. Kind of. Um, kind of. I mean, no, you would, but it's like he go, he literally cringes, like, ugh, yeah, I should have right. to this Asian guy I just met. Like, there's there's a lot of, it's just an incredibly sophisticated uh, movie that's kind of ahead of its time. It's in a weird way, it's more progressive than Austin Powers, which was. Yeah, uh, I think that's true. I think that's true. Or eight years yeah. later. It's like about media more right. than anything else Mike did. It's also about cable, which we love. Of course, of course, of course. Um, you, so around this time, uh, uh, your brother was working as a stand-up comedian, right? Yes, and it so, still is. Um, right, and and so is was that your sort of gateway into the world you're in now? Yes, that was absolutely. Um, I went to. I used to go to the go to to New York on the weekends when I was in high school, and my brother was a doorman at the Improv with David Tell, and it was you know so I would see like. Like Ray Romano would give us a ride home, Dennis Leary. I mean, guys that like. And then I and then when I went to NYU, I started working the door at a comedy club through my brother and Jay, a guy named Jason Steinberg and a guy named Barry Katz and and um and the only other guy my age was Dave Chappelle, and like Jay Moore was around and and but the average show was like Sarah Silverman, John Stewart, Dave Chappelle, and this was at the comedy six. Comedy Cellar. This was right? at the Boston Comedy Club, Boston it, Comedy which was Club. like the knockoff Comedy Cellar. It's like two and a half, two blocks away. And it was I remember cheaper. that place. And, um, and uh, Louis C.K. and I worked on one of Louis' short films when I was in when I was in college. Like, so it was. I, I, my choice was like, well, these guys seem Louis C.K. and Dave Chappelle seem more talented than anyone at film school. Do you remember when you and and Dave Chappelle first connected? Like even like maybe the first conversation you had or like, did you know right away? Like, Oh, I have a good rapport with this person. Uh, I don't remember the first conversation. I remember like the first sort of 
clump of interactions like well we would just kind of like walk around and and uh yeah i don't know i don't remember the exact i think he was teaching my he was playing music with my roommate randy perlstein Abe was playing what did he play or what does he play? Dave played i think he was trying to play organ maybe randy was trying to play sax one of them something was somebody was playing something um <laughs> I, they, I mean, it didn't last. It wasn't like, hey, I got the recordings right here. Um, <laughs> it didn't. They were just noodling around. But uh, I think he claims I got him smoking. He either claims I'm the first person who, who made him smoke or drink coffee, which is they're both so odd to me. Um, I think I saw the first time he smoked weed. Oh, I wow. Believe. Yeah, which seems historic now. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Back then, we were just smoking weed with the, one of the hosts of um, of uh, a Comedy Central show, a guy named Wally Collins. We smoked weed, and Wally Collins, I believe, hosted Stand Up Stand Up on yeah. Comedy Central. That's right. Um, so yeah, so but it was 1992, I believe. And, and what was your impression of his comedy? Oh, he was great. Dave was great. You know, back then, not like I'm trying to curry favor, but it's not like it's not. My brother said something interesting about Dave, which is, and he said it back then, which is he's the only person I've ever seen make the whole room laugh. Meaning no one kills a hundred percent for the most part, but he used to be able to kill a hundred percent. There were no, like, there's always like a bit of a dead spot in a room or like that section isn't laughing very hard or whatever. Dave never, there was never a thud. Dave had a, a joke in high school that he told me about that's like it's like if you're wondering how funny he was he had a joke when he was in high school when he started doing stand-up he'd been doing it probably four or five years when i met him but uh that if if uh, the tv show alf was popular and he's it's a good thing alf landed in a white neighborhood uh because if he landed in a black neighborhood two weeks later you would see brothers wearing alf skin coats <laughs> He didn't say brothers, but you get the idea. There we go. Um, so, uh, so, so, yeah, like he was pretty. He had it pretty, pretty together in terms of comedy. You know what? That that Alf joke is still relevant because they're bringing Alf back. So he can he can. Are just they really? That joke. They really are. He well, he's got. I, I think he has more material now. I think he's got a new opener. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Or maybe a closer. Who knows? Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. We'll get back to Dave in a minute, but... uh... You had a basic cable career long before the Chappelle show. You actually started out, uh, I believe one of your first writing gigs was on Singled Out. Yes. Uh, I was working for a casting director and on Singled Out. And the, the, they were, they both, I guess I, they were looking for a writer's assistant. And I was like, you know, well, I write. And uh, this is, I guess, 93. I moved to L.A. in 93. I guess it was 94, uh, maybe 95. So they, uh, I became a writer's assistant, and then both writers quit. So I was still a writer's assistant. For, 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 those, who, for those who may not remember, could you uh, describe uh, oh, MTV, singled out was MTV like Singled Out? What was it? Yes, it was hosted by uh, Chris Hardwick and Jenny McCarthy, uh, who you may know as a... Uh, doctor um <laughs> dr jenny mccarthy uh she's a she's a virologist apparently she, uh and they it was like a it was kind of like a, it was like 50 people and then they narrow it down to one person and uh it was just very stupid i remember when we were doing the pilot i or maybe i yeah i said i think this show is either going to be I think this show is going to be very popular. It's very stupid, but I think it's going to be very popular. Well, it made a huge star out of Jenny. Yes. And and, and a star to obviously, uh, you know, also got Chris started. Well, and, yeah, Jenny was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah. And our and our motto back then at MTV was, you know, we a show was okay if we, we thought it was just stupid enough. Yeah. No, it was, it was like, I'd say it was stupid enough and then some. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, but it was a good writing staff, and these guys, uh, uh, Kevin and Kevin Coppolo and Heath Seaford, who ended up writing everything at Nickelodeon and probably at Disney now, and Jason Van Oker and Mark Cronin, who Rock of Love, Flavor of Love, Below Deck, uh, me. Uh, it was a, it, they were good. They were good. It was, and it was, and it was like the first time I wrote on a TV show, and I was like, I really like, like these are my people. Like I really like comedy writers. And then, uh, ironically enough, in the same um, office, because, you know, it's MTV, 
MTV networks had rented out an office building and there were, you know, four empty offices. So they were like, Hey, let's put Nickelodeon's all that there. I ended up talking to them, uh, just sort of, you know, gabbing, talking shit, whatever. And, um, I pitched on the first season. They didn't hire me. And then they ended up hiring me for the second season. And I also found out that they stole one of my ideas from my pitch. Remind people what all that was. All that was a kids. It was basically like in living color for kids. Um, and um, I, there was a, a uh, it ended up being a fairly popular sketch called, uh, with Keenan Thompson called Pierre S. Cargo, where he teaches kids from <laughs> mine. I pitched uh, Paco Delicious, which was a guy teaching you Spanish. Uh, and they stole that and made it PRS cargo. Pretty bad theft, if you ask me. Um, pretty thinly veiled. Uh, like they took a sketch and put a fake mustache on it, basically. Um, um, and uh, so anyway, I wrote there for a season, I think season two in Orlando, because I was Nickelodeon. They decided to shoot Universal Studios Orlando. I'm sure there was some tax incentive, something Doug can speak to. Um, <laughs> some C-suite stuff that I have will never understand. So um, when you were working on all that, was that, was that your first experience writing sketch comedy? Yeah. Um, I actually wrote a sketch for a show on MTV called Kamikaze. Doug, you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, me that was and the Ron thing. Gold wrote a sketch, and it was like a Howard Stern thing. And that was like, I like kind of felt like, oh, I kind of can figure this out. But yeah, Nickelodeon was my first writing for a sketch show. And I the thing that I took away from that was that I would, I'd be in the room and it was, you know, the head writer, a guy named Dan Schneider, who was on a sitcom called Head of the Class um, in the 80s with, a, with another exec producer of the show, Brian Robbins, who now I believe is the president of Nickelodeon. Um, no, Brian Robbins is the president of Paramount Pictures as damn. well as Nickelodeon. Damn. He's a um, I man, I should I should return his call. Oh, just, they should have uh, been nicer to him. Uh, well, no. What's funny is they used to just abuse me in a very funny. What now we call abuse? Then I just thought was funny. Uh, Brian <laughs> Robbins actually said something really funny because I would never get sketches on. And Brian Robbins said uh, at one point, he goes, "I should have fired you when I had the chance." Which <laughs> is really funny. That's hilarious. Yeah. No, it's funny. In retrospect, it's funny. Uh, it was actually funny that Dan, they used to throw food at me. They called me the boy because I was younger than them. Um, I was probably 20 or 21. Um, and uh, but what I learned from that was that, you know, we'd be rewriting a sketch and I'd have an idea and I wouldn't pitch it. And then six minutes later, somebody else would pitch the same idea and they would get on and be like, just you should trust your ideas more. Um, and then so, yeah, so that was sort of it was uh, I mean, I you know. Doug, I don't know if you guys have covered this, but it, these these networks were sort of AAA or a farm league or or incubator for thousand percent for uh, you know other shows, obviously. But Kimmel being a good example of like you know a network show or or whatever. Like there was, I think there was a lot a lot of writers got started on cable in the nineties mm -hmm. and yeah. two thousand. So, uh, want to talk to you a little bit about Half Baked and. Yes. I want to lead into this by saying that I was at the Mark Twain prize ceremony a couple of years ago when um, Dave was honored. Um, my, my 
regular job is writing for Vulture and New York Magazine. And I wrote a piece for Vulture specifically about how great your speech was. Oh, you wrote like the funniest headline ever, which well, was, I, you know, I don't know. That Neil Brennan was the funniest person at the Mark Twain press. It was so, it was so direct <laughs> that it was like, it just felt like a bot wrote it in a, in a good way. I don't know if I wrote that one. It, I don't always get to write the headlines, but I, I, I'll take credit. For I it. remember the, it was just kind of a trans, transcript of what the speech was, right. but it was great. It was like, I was very grateful that you guys, that you wrote that. So part of what I uh, referenced in that article was your story about how Half-Baked came about, which I thought mm -hmm. was very funny. Mm -hmm. Can you regale us with that again? Yeah, basically me and Dave kind of talked about doing something together. Like not, we've written some jokes for his act here and there, but not even nothing like wholesale or whatever. Um, and then he was like, hey, we the, the part I didn't say, which but it's barely relevant is we had seen the movie Train Spotting, okay? And then when we were leaving, he was like, you can make a weed movie uh, of that. And I was like, yeah, that's true. And then six months later or something, um, he goes, he calls me and goes, hey, Universal calls, tell them we're writing a weed movie. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, what weed movie? And he was like, um, I don't know, don't worry about it. And, uh, and so, then Universal called me, Bob Simons, the producer, his office called me and and, um, and they were like, are you writing a weed movie with Dave Chappelle? And I was like, yes. And they're like, when can you pitch it? And I didn't really understand deadlines. So I just made up one, which is in 30 days time. I just decided that we, if we had 30, like that seemed like the right amount of time. And then we waited until night 29 to outline it. Actually, we spent all day. I should, let's give credit where credit's due. Um, we started one in the afternoon and we laid out the outline uh, in like 12 hours. And I think that that uh, commitment to quality really showed up on screen. And, um, and, then we, and then we pitched it the next day and Bob bought it. And then we had pitched it at Universal and uh, Disney and Disney didn't Disney liked it. Dave had a deal there, whatever. Um, but yeah, so that was in, in, I believe March. And then we were shooting in July, which is insane. I heard, I, I read somewhere that when you were shooting it in Toronto, right? Yeah. That uh, Norm Macdonald and Saget were making dirty work and you were all staying at the same hotel. Yes. Yes. That's absolutely true. And Norm, I think Norm didn't like me for a long time because he <laughs> gave me the script for dirty work. And like, I couldn't read it. I like, couldn't get my head. I just was so in up to my neck in our movie that like reading his movie was just like, uh, that's why Saget's in Half-Baked. Cause he was um, there. Cause he was there. Yeah, he was there shooting um, Dirty Work. Got it. Uh, then you and Dave, at least sort of, you know, uh, for public uh, um, projects, there was a little bit of a break before you got together on the, on the, on the Chappelle show. Yeah, there was a public, I mean, we didn't really work together. It was a bad work situation where like, basically we had to write, we were supposed to write another movie for Universal. And then I became like the hammer for me and Dave writing. Like I was like the taskmaster and and Dave's dad was dying and I didn't, I wasn't very sympathetic to that. Like, and so I was just kind of like, a, so we just kind of stopped 
fucking with each other for a year or two. Right. So tell us about getting back together with him, you know, around the Chappelle show. Yeah. Um, we, he called me and was like, Hey, we should do like a playboy after dark. You know, I, it's probably, it's not even a thing that you get good at, but I think with, if a friend has an idea, it, it very rarely works out well, but if they have an idea and you're like, maybe I can talk them into something else. <laughs> Let me just go along with this and maybe it'll morph into something better. And I, I didn't even have like a, I, that wasn't consciously my thinking. I just wanted to do some with them. And um, we ended up pitching a, it was basically like, what bits do you have? What bits do I have? Like laying around. I had like a, a, a Kinko's video that I wanted to make because the Kinko's customer service is so bad um, <laughs> that I wanted to make that I like scouted locations for that I was going to shoot. And he had the bloopers from Roots as a sketch idea <laughs> and maybe the reparations. Wow. Like what would happen if reparations happened? What what would actually like, what would, what would the news look like? So I think with that, we pitched Comedy Central. We pitched, uh, I think, Lou Wallach at Comedy. We pitched HBO. Uh, I won't say who, but um, but I mentioned this in the Mark Twain speech, and she said, um, "Why do we need you when we have Chris Rock?" Ouch. Which is a fine, good for Chris. You know, <laughs> as I'm a huge fan. But also, also short sighted. One of my bosses, who I will not uh, name, once said to me, "Well." Do you need both Colbert and John Stewart? Yeah, there you go. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah they're both great. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that what was that for the 11:30 or that was just you had to pay Stephen to stay on the Daily Show? Uh, the latter. Got it. Um, yeah, I, that's a. I'm I'm not going to defend what he said, but I hear it. like if you're like, why would I give a correspondent that much money? I get that. No, no, no. This was, no, no, no. I'm sorry. This was later. This was when they were both on. I'm sorry. They, oh, yeah, they, yeah, were, yeah. they were both on. We were paying them a lot of money, by the way. Well-deserved. They were doing great. There was nothing bigger and better in late night television. And I had a guy who thought we could, you know, do it for half the price with half the guys. Guys. Yep. Um, so, so yeah. So, uh, so we, they said, and then we walked up sixth Avenue, literally walked up sixth Avenue. It was like maybe July or August. It was so hot. And I just remember thinking, like, I was crazy because Dave, I was like, he's so funny. Like, what am I, am I out of my mind? There's a window in here that we didn't talk about, which was before Spell Show, I wrote a couple movies. And one of them I sold to MTV Films or something um, with a guy named Mike Sher. And we pitched, we pitched a movie probably in 2000 for Dave Spell and Will Ferrell. Two different producers that week said, could it be, Tom Green and Orlando Jones. Holy God. And it was one of these things where you're just like, I, we would look at each other like, are we crazy? <laughs> like, have we lost our minds? Because like, I know, Mike worked at SNL at the time, knew how funny Will was. I worked with Dave. I knew how funny he was. And I was like, is the world just going to become a world that we don't understand? <laughs> and Tom Green was fucking great. I was going to say, he was he was probably having his MTV moment. Yeah, no, he was having his moment, but it was just one of these things where, like, so that's, you won't even consider Dave and Will? Yeah. I don't know. It was just and, like. And by the way, Orlando Jones, I think, was doing a 7-Up commercial. Yes, God bless. <laughs> uh, but it's just a weird thing. I, even Orlando probably would have been like, use Dave. Um, 
So, so yeah, so uh, walking up Sixth Avenue and then we went to Comedy Central and pitched to Lou Wallach and, and he seemed uh, enthusiastic. And, um, and of course the person at HBO always says like, I helped them get their pitch together. They didn't, it was verbatim the same. So, and then we did the pilot uh that summer of oh two yeah and and uh that's just my only recollection is like doing the pilot pilot's not bad didn't have an audience but like sketches were the ones i pitched bloopers from roots kinkos and and uh reparations wraparounds were just dave talking to camera just like wherever um we both watched it and we're like we feel like what needs an audience and then so once we then but we so we still had the sketches and and then uh got picked up for 13 and apparently dave told what did conan o'brien and conan's like who are you gonna write it with and he's like i'm writing with this guy neil and he's like anybody else he's like no and he's like don't don't do it that way <laughs> don't do it, do it like a like an old man in a horror movie like no don't do it don't go up there it, I, I stand by. I mean, it was like we'd take outside pitches from people, and there were some some very good ones. And um, but it was it was hard. But I think the idea was like, even if the sketches are not great, they'll be like in the same voice, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd say that's fairly true. So, what was your process like? Because when you know you have that many episodes, and then several sketches to do for each episode like where do you even begin well you know what's funny so i think the show got picked up and tom shale's book and andrew miller um live from new york came out mm-hmm. i think that summer I, I could be wrong but as i recall we got picked up and i read that book and like learned about sketches <laughs> that sounds insane but like kind of learned like oh there's like performance pieces and then there's like premise pieces and then there's more odd, you know, like types of sketch, like a living room sketch or the commercial parody or like just kind of thinking about it in different ways. But in essence, it was kind of like, you know, it was it was hand to mouth. I mean, I we didn't really I mean, when people are like, did you guys have an elaborate process? We had uh, two types of sketches, longies and shorties. That's how thought out this was. So we're getting to a part of the conversation where I feel like both you and Doug may be able to participate in this together. But so after season two, when Dave renegotiated his deal for a reported $50 million, and then the taping for season three got delayed a little bit. um, When you finally got back to work, did it feel like anything was different or had changed? Uh. Yes, in that the, and Doug can speak to this firsthand, the problem, I told Dave before anything, anybody negotiated anything, like during probably the second season, I was like, the only way, they're going to have, they're going to, they're, they're not going to want to pay both of us. So they're going to play divide and conquer. Um, and, uh, and then sure enough, they like Dave closed his deal. And then um, I was offered a horrible, insulting offer. And then I got nominated for a bunch of Emmys. And then uh, 
I believe I was the most nominated person. And someone called me from Comedy Central to congratulate me. I yelled at them about my offer. And then, Doug, you called me personally. Um, what I, oh, God. <laughs> to to, uh, to uh, you try to clean up the mess. Yeah, they, they came in with a very particular strategy just around Dave. Um, right. Rather than, rather than you fine, and Dave. Which is yeah. fine, but the problem was the way the show operated was like it was very uh conjoined so to speak right. so basically but whatever that's fine like that you give him all the all the points and all that stuff you want but my point ceiling was awfully low right there wasn't a lot of like you guys weren't feeling any pressure to make it higher right and they weren't um be, they weren't it's just a lot of like they didn't want Dave to think that they everybody's out. right. Yeah, there's there was a, there was yeah there was a lot of well there's a lot of finger pointing going around that's for sure. But right, did that change the vibe on the set between you and Dave? Yeah, um, it was like then it's like okay, right now go be funny. <laughs> and it was kind of like okay, uh, how? <laughs> so then right, so you guys went back. I think you were like two or three episodes in kind of and well, we didn't then... do any tapings we just shot a bunch of sketches right uh and i actually stand by the sketches. i think the sketches are very funny so sketches are good um and then it was just slowly like me and him our relationship sort of deteriorate like sort of d- diminished and like the spirit of the show the spirit was sort of ruined and the relationship was sort of ruined uh, with I don't see how you could have come to a different outcome. Maybe I don't know. Like that's I don't funny. Know. I, that's you know one of my questions was going to be you know do you think as you look back could have actually ended any other way? And I think about that a lot. About okay, what could what could I have done differently? What could Economy Central have done differently? Um, you know what could the agents have done differently or Neil and Dave and and so I, I don't know the answer. I'm just wondering whether that's something you feel you have a point of view on. Well, I don't think, you know, again, it's like from if I'm you and I'm there's this like supernova of a show that's very like personality driven or like he's the star of the show, like unequivocally and an unbelievable, you know, once in a millennium comedy talent. Um, what are the odds I'm talented also? What are the fucking odds? So, so, uh, in which I've had to like slowly prove over time, like, okay. But, uh, so I think I would have preferred a bit of like, uh, respect paid, but it, but you guys didn't have to because he would have done the show without me, allegedly. I mean, again, one of these things, like, I don't know what I was in, uh, I was in an impossible position because everyone was trying to placate Dave's ego around uh d- being uh, doing it are you a team member or are you right. just like a? Sl- you, you you were not flying with a lot of air cover um yes uh, yeah that's the way i would describe it uh so yeah. that's a tough that's a tough place to be so so when dave actually left like how, how did you find that out do you remember when you got the news that he was just gone i think maybe his manager called me i was on set that was what was great about it. I was waiting for him to arrive. Um, and uh, and I think his manager told me, but I couldn't tell anyone. So I was just like, yeah, he's in. Yeah, he's not around. People go, do you know where he is? I'd be like, I do. 
<laughs> and they go, can you tell me? I go, no, but it's it's pretty commensurate with how insane the show is. <laughs> like if you had to pick a place to go for like, what's a cartoonish? The everything about the show is cartoonish. The success, the the somebody referred to it as a uh, catastrophic success. Ah, um, I love that. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, like the where he went and the thing, Oprah and the. Uh, Did you think he was coming back? No, never thought he was coming back. No, I never thought for a second it was coming back. So, th- th- so that was that. Yeah, I just knew because it was so like our relationship was so. Uh, decimated by the time he leaves that it's like it wasn't shocking to me right i mean it was shocking but it wasn't surprising it was inevitable in some way i feel like dave talked about this maybe even on oprah but certainly elsewhere where he talked about how the way the jokes were landing were certain people in the audience and he felt like they weren't laughing at them for like the right reasons Mm -hmm. do you think that was a factor in this as well I mean, did you have a sense of that? Uh, there was one incident where someone laughed, that you know, but the person had like a just had a condescending laugh by nature from the first time we ever met him. But if you're if you feel bad about it, then you take it and you you can spin it, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sure. But I also don't envy his position of being like, you know, the spokesman for for the standard bearer for. A, a entire race of people. Right. I mean, and I also think that a lot of the comedy from that time, I mean, you can say this about South Park too, I think. People, there, there were people that would understand when they were doing satire, and then there were people who were laughing, again, for the wrong reasons. And both of those sets of people were watching the show. So I can understand, you know what I mean? Yeah, Where, I don't, I think that it's a lot more people are watching for satire. If, mm-hmm. if I believe you're going to have like some collateral damage of people that are watching it for basically it's like a version of hate watching something in the, in the old days, they used to say that about all in the family. Right. The right. people that agreed right. with you know, right. like the joke was on Archie, except if you agreed with them. Yeah. And then it was, you know, and then it was like, yeah. And then it was like, yeah, this guy's talks a lot of it, but it's like, you see the show from his point of view instead of Mike's point of view or, or Gloria, I'm just making names up. No, that's, um, those are correct but, uh, names. Oh, good for me. What's what's your relationship like uh, with Dave these days? You guys have kind of come all the way around, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, good. It's all like you know, fine. No, you know, it's it's sort of like uh, kind of hard to describe because it's a very he's a very specific guy. So I guess I'm specific too. I don't know. It's a bit like. Uh, it's like guys that want a championship together or something. Right. In sports. It's right. just a bit of like a we're we're in the foxhole together, a lot of a lot of a yeah. lot of yeah. a lot of time together, had each other's back, yep. you know, made a made yeah. a run, never forget. Yep. yep. People still like it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So you've done a ton of things, Neil. I wish we had time to talk about everything. You write, you direct, you produce, you act, you do stand-up. Um, but you've been spending a lot of time over the last couple of years. Um uh, doing some off-Broadway presentations of your comedy. And you recently finished something in New York called uh, Unacceptable. Can you tell us about that and what the plans are? Yes. Uh, did Unacceptable in New York for 77 shows. I don't know how many. It's, it was a long time. Going to do it 
in LA soon. I'm I'm announcing soon, I guess. And then I'm going to tour it a little bit and then it'll live on a streamer that I cannot uh, name or I don't I don't want I don't want to name it because I don't want people to be like, well, just wait. <laughs> um, why would I why would I go see it when I can wait? So it may never air on a streamer, but between you and me, it's going to air on a streamer. This may be a weird, weird uh, subject to uh, to finish up on, but um, both in your comedy and, you know, just kind of out there in the in well, I've heard you on podcasts uh, previously, you talk a lot about mental health. So yeah. could you talk a little bit about why that's so important to you and and, and why you're have become so comfortable talking about it? Uh, I had I don't I'm not embarrassed. Like I'm the youngest of 10, as you mentioned. So I'm almost from a different world than some of my older brothers and sisters. So like when I went to therapy and started taking medication for depression, they were like, wait, what, what are you doing? What are you, how long are you going to do this for? Um, and, uh, it turns out like 20 years. Um, <laughs> but, but so I was, I'd already kind of breached it with them in terms of like society doesn't really like talking about it. Like in general, now they're getting more comfortable with it. Um, uh, the ironic thing is I did a joke last night about how much like mental health has entered sports and how they, we want our athletes to be mentally healthy. And my point is like, no, I don't, uh, <laughs> Michael Jordan's not mentally healthy. He's, he's a fucking psycho. And that's what I'm looking for. Um, so not, not, ben, not ben Simmons. No, well, Ben Simmons is like, he's hiding behind it. But yeah, there's a few, there's a few, uh, there's a few people. It's like, uh, Tom Brady, not a healthy person. Um, beautiful, great looking, not healthy. So, uh, so yeah, I don't have a problem talking about it. I think it's important. And I think it's like relevant to talk about. And I had uh, stuff I wanted to say in public about it as like a, in sort of using it within telling my own personal story. So I don't, I have no shame about it. And people have kind of, I don't think I kicked the door down, but I was pretty early through the door in terms of like talking about it in public. Yeah. Cause I just don't, I think it's like, you know, tennis elbow or something. I don't see it as a deficiency. I don't see it as like, and that, do you guys still like me? Like, I don't, I don't see it as well, like many things on that. You were ahead of the curve. I mean, it's a thing now people talk about it. Yeah. It's out there and it's a good thing. I got one question we did forget to ask you, uh, which is, which is how we usually end, which is excluding your shows. What is your all-time favorite basic cable television show? It's a great question. Uh, I would say making the band on MTV with Puff Daddy, which we did a <laughs> sketch about. Um, I was a perennial real world watcher for a long time until that's a funny, like, passage in life where you just go i don't care about these people anymore when you're like in your late 30s you go you know what i don't give a shit um <laughs> and well, yeah uh, you do what you do age out of that shit behind the music is another um basic classic yeah right well neil i owe you a uh I owe, I owe you a lunch at crossroads or something you owe me nothing doug um all right very good we appreciate it man all right thanks a lot neil 
So it was really interesting to me to hear directly from Neil about especially the ending of Chappelle's show and how all of that happened. And I don't know, I just think it's such a shame that it seems like he and Dave really did not communicate with each other when things got crazy right before the show ended. Yeah, look, it's a story that you hear often in showbiz when things take off. And in this case, take off very quickly. Everybody loses their head a little bit and they both went to their corners. They've patched it up since then. But during that time, there was not a lot of communication going on and it felt like it wasn't the same. Yeah, and it's understandable, like, since Dave Chappelle obviously was the star of the show, but I can see how, as the co-creator, Neil would have felt pushed out of the way a little bit. thousand percent. I mean, I think a very tough position to be in. He, like, you know, he was flying without a lot of air cover. Everybody was most concerned about Dave. There were a lot of people who thought he can do it without Neil. Who knows whether that's true or not? But I think for Neil, who is the guy behind the scenes, that's always a tough place to be. Yeah. And another thing that's so remarkable to me is for a long time, I feel like people were like, when is Chappelle's show going to come back? There was this sense of hope that like maybe Dave Chappelle will resurrect it. I felt like certainly after this conversation, it was clear to me that that's just never going to happen. Both of them are doing different things and the Chappelle show is just part of their past. Yeah. I don't think Dave is ever coming back to television in this way. I think it's a lot of heavy lifting and it's a lot of work. And, you know, Dave's got this great life, which I think is perfect for him, where he can go out and do literally what he does best, better than anybody, anytime he wants anywhere he wants and get paid a lot more money than even I was willing to pay him back then. So, you know, I think he found the place where he needed to be. Uh, I don't think he's coming back. You know, the sketch format, still a great format. It's probably something I think Neil's interested in. But then again, how can you do better than The Chappelle Show? Well, and that's the thing. As strong of a stand-up comedian as Dave is, I think he's an incredible sketch performer. A lot of the sketches still hold up beautifully, and he's a big reason why. And so it makes me a little sad to think that we'll never see him do that again, although I guess we occasionally get it when he hosts Saturday Night Live. Right. Saturday Night Live is sort of the perfect vehicle for him because he can come in in a week, get it all done, it's live, and then he can go back to doing what he loves to do and, and what he does best. You know, Chris Rock once said to me around the time that the show went down that he would never consider a sketch comedy after The Chappelle Show. He thought that was a drop-the-mic sketch comedy, and nobody could do it better than David Neal did it. Yeah. And it's, and again, I'm glad that we talked to Neil because it was Chappelle's show, but it was also Neil's show too. And I, I'm glad he got a chance to sort of talk about his role in it. And one of the things I kicked myself with that we didn't get to ask Neil about was the music on the show. Mm. They had so much incredible hip hop. I think that's actually really one of the places that Dave and Neil connected. And it was a really big part of the show. They really, they had a bunch of bands on long before they became huge. Everybody from the Roots to the Beastie Boys. Tribe Called Quest. Tribe Called Quest. I mean, there were a bunch of them. Kanye. And then, of course, Dave went on to make that great movie, Block Party, which almost felt like a spinoff of The Chappelle Show, at least musically. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was it was all music, but it was still such fun to watch and just really joyful. And I think that's that's kind of how Chappelle's show felt a lot of the time. It was just like a really fun, joyful thing to watch. There you go. And by the way, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, what a great stand up Dave is. Neil's a really good stand up. I've seen him do his one man show, different ones a number of times. And I would encourage anybody out there who listened to this conversation today and got turned out to Neil Brennan to go check out his stand up comedy or his one man show when it comes to your town. He's pretty great. It was great talking to him. We hope you guys enjoyed it. And we look forward to coming back to you again next week on Basic. Basic is a Pantheon media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Chaney. And Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the Sirius XM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't, Don't forget, forget to follow, follow the show so you never miss an episode. episode. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 